You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Matt Hudson, who is a writer for New Yorker and other journals, and also the author of this book, The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. Matt, this book is, I don't know, 10 years old at this point. It's still it's like an amazingly fantastic book, and it's in, I guess, a genre that we might call, I don't know what we call the genre, adaptive irrationality to some extent, but it goes well beyond that because I think that there's some interesting insights and reflections on the sacred and on enchantment. But you start off by making this claim that you illustrate throughout the book that all of us engage in magical thinking, that this is actually something that is normal and it's integral part of being human. It's how we understand the world. And even people who are rational and scientific engage in magical thinking. So I guess the main question that most people would have after hearing that description is, what's the difference between magical thinking and just irrationality? Because no one thinks that irrationality is a good thing. We're all trying to, at least a lot of us educated academic folks, we're all trying to make ourselves more rational. But you make the point that more rational doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to, nor should you, abandon what you call magical thinking. Yeah, so there are a few things to unpack there. So sometimes I like to say that I'm abdicating the the rationality of irrationality. And so there are different uses of the word rational. You could talk about like logical or scientific rationality, which is maybe the meaning that we're most used to. Like if you, if A then B and adhering to rules of reasoning and evidence-based logic and sort of scientific thinking. Then there's another form of rationality, which is doing things that get you to your goals. And so when I talk about the rationality of irrationality, the first word is in reference to doing things that get you to your goals. And the second use is in reference to scientific or logical thinking. So Mm -hmm. abandoning scientific or logical thinking can actually help you achieve your goals. And we can get more into that later. And then in terms of how magical thinking differs from, I guess, other similar words or irrationality, I use it in a sort of a specific way in the book. There's sort of a colloquial use of the term, uh, which is just everyday irrationality or over being overly optimistic. They say, oh, I think this is going to ha- I'm going to win the lottery or something. Do I say, oh, that's magical thinking. I'm using it more to describe a specific form of irrationality, which is superstition or belief in magic and or religious thinking. And so the way that I define it in the book is applying attributing mental properties to non-mental phenomena or non-mental mm-hmm. properties to mental phenomena. So examples of that would be seeing the world as alive or as ha- having consciousness. So that's attributing mental, attributing mental properties to non-mental phenomena. Or if you think that your thoughts have some sort of direct force on the world that you can wish something and then it's going to happen, that's attributing non-mental properties to mental phenomena thinking that just consciousness can act as a force in the world or that it can exist 
independently of your brain as a sort of a soul or a spirit. That's another example of that. So we can get into this stuff more as we talk. It's hard to draw the line because, you know, when we think about irrationality in the Kahneman and Tversky judgment and decision-making sense, a lot of times that's about just faulty inference. It's about misunderstanding probabilities. It's about framing effects and stuff like that. But what you're describing is there's certainly parallels, for instance, like when you talk about recognizing, seeing patterns, right, where there are no patterns, right? That You referred to that a bit as magical thinking. But I think that the specifics that you're mentioning, some of them have to do with this confusion between the physical and, and the mental or the spiritual. But then there's also this idea of causal reasoning and how you make up these causal stories, which you may not have any real evidence for. You're kind of gap-filling, right, Right. when you're trying to make sense of what you see in the world. And that's an example of magical thinking. I was wondering, so I think there must be happy medium, right? On one end, there's this sense where the world is lacking. There's something missing, right? If you don't have enchantment with the world, your life is dead. But on the opposite extreme, you have like OCD, right? So is this kind of an argument in favor of a moderate version of OCD? Yes, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So if you think that sort of the universe doesn't care about you and we're just a, you're just a collection of atoms going about its day, that could be a depressing viewpoint. On the other hand, if you think that everything is imbued with meaning and every little act, you know, you step on a crack and it's going to break your mother's back. That is also, that can be overwhelming. In the book, I mentioned one case of a kid who stepped on a crack and he thought he caused 9-11. There was a case report written about this in a journal. So yeah, finding a happy medium between thinking that there's no meaning in the world and thinking that everything it has infinite meaning or is sort of imbued with a large amount of meaning. Yeah, finding that a balance between those things can be difficult. There, there are no easy answers there. Yeah, I had a friend who has had a bit of OCD, and it kind of drove me crazy. And I kept thinking, wow, you know, I wish this person would get rid of these characteristics. But then I had another friend who was just like Spock. She was like just totally yeah. rational. I was like, oh, I can't deal with that either, because yeah. she didn't really see any kind of meaning in anything. But I want to start with, you talk about your own life, and there's a lot of wonderful stories in here about how your personal experience helped you to understand what you were observing in this book. And you tell a story about your beanie baby. And I think Niels Bohr has a story about the horseshoe in his office. And it seems like we all have some attachment to physical objects, Mm -hmm. right? For apparently no reason. It'd be hard to find anybody that didn't have some sentimentality or something. And you say that this is itself an illustration of magical thinking. Yeah, that's an example of something that people may not even consider to be magical thinking. So it's valuing celebrity memorabilia or family heirlooms or special things that are connected to history or some exotic circumstance, like a a rock from the moon, for instance. So valuing a rock from the moon over a direct replica or a baseball Mm -hmm. that set a sports record versus a baseball that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference or a like a sweater passed down from a loved one versus an identical looking sweater. People value the first over the second. And I think that is an example of magical thinking. It's thinking that there is some sort of non-physical substance or trait or like an essence, a spiritual essence mm-hmm. that is 
carried through contact. It's called contagion right. in the literature, sympathetic contagion. So seeing that even though the atoms bet between two objects may be identical, thinking that there's something else on top of one and that makes it more meaningful or gives it some sort of special power or property. There's one, one study in which people were told that a golf club was, had, was previously owned by a professional golfer and that in pre increased their partying ability. They thought that somehow the skill of the previous owner was passed on into the golf club and, and helped their performance. And so that actually, that's an example of the, not just the ubiquity of magical thinking, but the occasional benefits of it and that it helped their performance. I have, you know, old ticket stubs and things lying around. And when I try to wonder, why do I keep these old ticket stubs? So I can kind of remind myself of what I did. And I said, that stuff's all in my Google calendar, right? So I really yeah. want to know what I did. I just go back and look at it. So yeah. periodically when I have friends and relatives come through the house, they start throwing this stuff out. <laughs> I'm like, wait, why are you can't throw that stuff out, right? You mentioned the Beanie Baby. So that is uh, the summer after high school, before college, I lived in Alaska. And when I got there, I saw this red Beanie Baby looked like a dragon that I bought. And I just kept him with me while I was there. I would go on hikes and mountain climbs and I would take pictures of it with like marmots and things like that. And then I just kept him with me for years after that, I slept with him. And it was like a comforting presence. Yeah. It's tough to say whether I benefited from that or whether it had some ne negative effects because it's not a controlled experiment, but I liked having him around. And eventually I lost him and I could have bought another, but that just wouldn't have been the same. And I, I know people that if they have a, a good day, the whatever they're wearing on that day, they want to hold on to. And, and if they have a bad day, whatever they're wearing on that day, they, you know, they don't want to ever wear again because it's kind of accumulated. Yeah, some kind get of rid of this thing. Cleanse myself of that. You talk about cooties and vibes. You didn't mention juju, but I think juju is part of that whole family of associational. Is this just yeah. like associational reasoning to some degree? Yeah, we have mental associations and then we turn that, we somehow we turn that into reasoning about the physical world. I guess we assume that mm -hmm. the universe works by the same principles that work our own, uh, our own mental habits or associations. You mentioned disgust, right? So there's a lot of literature on disgust. And, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with those studies that show that people are unwilling to eat chocolate pudding if it's in the shape of dog feces. And similarly, the flip side of that is people aren't willing to throw darts at a dartboard that has a picture of a loved one on it. That Presumably voodoo is like that as well. This disgust mechanism, just to use one example, has deep evolutionary origins. There's a solid rationale for wanting to avoid certain foods and so forth. But this idea that the characteristics of that food could transfer to things that are either look like that food or were in contact with that food, right? If yeah. you spit in a glass, right? You don't want to swallow yeah. it again, whatever. There's all this stuff that Paul Ross and, and others have worked on. Is this just an example of kind of things that wire together, fire together, that kind of thing? The Kibbs yeah. law, is that really what's going on here? Is there functionality to this? I think you mentioned error management theory, right? How would we justify, if we were thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective, why would it, I don't want to say make sense to have this kind of associational reasoning, but why would it make sense not to invest resources in coming up with a more kind of cleaner delineation in terms of what makes sense and what doesn't? It's unclear whether there is a value in this type of thinking. So the disgust applies to a couple different 
forms of magical thinking. So the way I lay out the book, there are seven chapters and each one describes one sort of form of magic that we all tend to believe in. So one is uh, objects carry essences, and that's to the contact, the contagion. Another is symbols have power, like numbers or pictures or words that represent something that always have power. And so something can be disgusting either through contact, like it touched something, or the symbolic way, like it looks like something, like pudding that, or fudge that is shaped like dog poo. And so it's unclear whether there is an inherent value or advantage to disgust at something that is not actually dangerous, or if that's just a carryover from a healthy form of disgust. Like the, it were, it's good to be overly cautious. If something looks like mm -hmm. something you wouldn't want to eat, maybe just play it safe and don't eat it. So disgust, I think at least what you're describing here is the cooties thing, which is how essence gets transferred through some kind of contact or association. Yeah. Is this asymmetric, right? Are bad properties more likely to be transferred than good properties? So if you were to take a glass of water and put a drop of sewage in it, you're not going to drink that water. But if you have a glass of sewage and you put a drop of distilled water in it, you're still not going to drink that water. So mm -hmm. I think it's good to be, there's a classic paper called Bad is Stronger Than Good by Roy Bomeister mm -hmm. in the psychology literature. And it's this idea that bad things can harm us more than good things can help us. So like one nice meal might nourish you for a little while, one like really bad meal could be rancid and make you sick for a long time or even kill you. So really, we're overly cautious of things. But you also mentioned how, right, want to get closer to things that have been in contact with kind of role models or people who are successful or people who are famous, yeah. right? You want to touch celebrities, yeah. right? That sort of thing. At least some good essences are transferable through contact. Yeah. Right? One of my favorite studies is people were asked, people imagined someone else wearing a sweater that either just looked like Mr. Rogers sweater or actually had been worn by Mr. Rogers. Mm -hmm. And they thought that the one that had been worn by Mr. Rogers would make this person nicer. Even if this person didn't know that had been worn by Mr. Rogers, they thought it would make them mm -hmm. nicer. And then there are also studies where people were asked, like, would you wear a sweater that had been worn by a Nazi or a killer? And they said, no, even if it had been completely cleaned. Um, yeah, they just, mm -hmm. I don't know if they thought that they would then become evil. There's something icky about that. Look, I think we can probably come up with some evolutionary rationale for how disgust works. But how do we explain this? Positive transfer. You said a little bit about how expectations can be self-fulfilling in some way. You talked about the golf club. How would it make sense for you to seek out inspiration and try to improve your performance or your health or whatever by gaining closer proximity to successful role models or, you know, healthy individuals? So I think it's uh, sort of a spilling over from very rational thinking. So we understand that things can be transmitted through contact. For instance, temperature, heat can transfer from one thing to another mm -hmm. through contact or dirt or wetness. So we understand that physical properties can be transmitted through contact. And so maybe we just, that transfers over into our thoughts about non-physical things. Thoughts or feelings or uh, abilities can maybe transfer over from one one thing to another and maybe there's not anything inherently you know rational or advantageous to thinking that way it might just be sort of a side effect of the previous form of thinking so is this kind of a version of the placebo effect you yeah. never talk about the placebo effect in the book but i kept thinking in with a lot of the examples that what you are talking about is some form of either conditioned response or some kind of 
self-fulfilling prophecy. In particular, you talk about things that can inspire confidence. And it seems like there's a lot of debate on confidence and why overconfidence is bad. But people seem to be able to alter their probability of success when they believe in luck. I know this comes from a little bit later in the book where you talk about kind of luck. But a belief in luck, you'd think, would lead people to lessen their effort and just let themselves be at the mercy of the, you know, the gods and so forth. But it seems to go the other way. These athletes who thank God for winning, these seem to be athletes that they work pretty hard. It seems paradoxical in that if you think the luck is on your side, maybe you just let it do its work and you don't need to do anything. Maybe that happens sometimes, but there is at least some evidence showing that people try to work synergistically with luck. And there's this Eastern concept that's called negotiable fate. Like fate might guide your outcome, but you need to sort of work with it. And I mentioned the golf club study where people performed better when they thought the golf club was owned by a professional golfer. There's another golf study I like where people were asked to make 10 putts and half of them were told that their golf ball was a lucky golf ball. And they actually made about 35% more putts when they thought their golf ball was lucky. It increased Mm -hmm. self-efficacy, which then in turn increased performance. So just thinking that luck is on your side It increases your self-confidence. It increases your effort to perhaps take advantage of that luck. You think that I have suddenly have this superpower. I better use it. And so rather than making you sit on your laurels or just let the work do everything for you, it actually makes you want to take advantage of this new power, at least in some circumstances. Maybe there are some cases where people think that I don't need to study for a test because I'm wearing my lucky sweater or something. But that doesn't, at least that doesn't always happen. Well, on the flip side, presumably, is true, right? So, you know, you talk about, uh, you mentioned voodoo death, where apparently it's a real phenomenon to some degree. I've seen studies that show that people will extend their lifespan past their birthdays. So, there seems to be some degree to which people's beliefs can impact their health in serious ways. And to what extent is, is voodoo death? It's hard to figure out how that makes sense, right? Why would that make sense? How could we explain that? Is there an adaptive rationality for something like that? Oh, it's the same kind of concept as the placebo effect. So the placebo effect is your beliefs enhance or influence your physiology in a positive way. The flip side of that is the nocebo effect, where your beliefs, your negative beliefs, Mm -hmm. affect your physiology in a negative way. And so voodoo death is a case of where someone places a curse on you, and now you believe that you're cursed, and then that makes you anxious, and your anxiety then reduces your health, which then could cause death earlier than usual. So it's not necessarily a strength to believe that you are cursed, but placing a hex on someone, or not a real hex, but telling someone that you're placing a a hex on them could then make that hex come true in a way. Yeah, and isn't there some evidence to suggest that the more anxious you are, the more likely you are to find patterns in noise? And presumably this also fits in with kind of the error management theory idea. When you're anxious, you're on the lookout for threats. You walk past that patch of grass, and if it starts moving, you're more likely to see the tiger. Yeah. Is And you mentioned you have a lot of different examples of how anxiety can influence one's pattern recognition skills, for better or for worse. Yeah. So just to explain the error management theory, it's the idea that if there are two opposing types of errors, like false positives versus false negatives, it's often better to make one kind of error than the other kind of error. So one idea is Mm -hmm. it's better to mistake a boulder for a bear than to mistake a bear for a boulder. Because if you mistake a boulder for a bear, Mm -hmm. then you'll just 
you'll be startled for a second. If you mistake, mistake a bear for a boulder, then you're in big trouble. And so our tendency to see animacy in the world more often, to see faces in, in clouds or to treat things as they're al- mm-hmm. as if they're alive, that's possibly a type of error management theory. We're leaning towards seeing things as alive, even though they sometimes are not overgeneralizing. It's a type of pattern finding. And pattern finding can be enhanced when we're anxious. When you feel out of control, when you feel scared, when you feel stressed out, you try to regain control. And one way to regain control is to look for patterns in the world, to try to understand the world better so that you can predict what's going to happen next or that you can find some way to gain leverage to control your fate. So there's a lot of evidence showing that when people are stressed out or anxious, they see various kinds of patterns. It can lead to conspiracy theories. It can lead to the ratings of whether God exists various kinds of supernatural beliefs. It can lead to even things like looking at a random pattern on the screen. They're more likely to see shapes in that pattern. And so you're more likely to attribute intentionality to inanimate objects, but you're also more willing to attribute intentionality to other humans, right? So if somebody accidentally bumps into you, you're more likely to think that they did it on purpose. Yeah, Yeah. that's It's related to the conspiracy theories. People do all kinds of things and maybe it's unplanned, maybe it's random, maybe someone sends an email and then then something, you see people whispering about something and then something bad happens and they're completely unrelated. But if you're on edge, you might make a connection between those things and say, oh, they were whispering about me and then Mm -hmm. what led to this sort of pre-planned sabotage against me. When we normally talk about superstition, and that's another word that kind of comes into the mix when you're thinking about some synonyms of magical thinking. But superstition is really, it's it's all about causal inference. And there's lots of evidence that all animals are superstitious to some degree. By superstitious, we mean that their causal inference is not perfect, that they sometimes confuse sequential correlation with causation. Right. So to what extent is superstition just a natural byproduct of the kind of causal inference that we all do? Just like some of the other words we've been talking about, there are different definitions of of superstition. So in a Skinner box at random intervals, food or water would be given to the animal, the pigeon perhaps. And whatever the animal was doing, let's say the pigeon was bobbing its head or pacing around in a certain way, it would reinforce that behavior. And so the animal would do that more frequently. And that could be seen as a kind of superstition because the animal associated the behavior it was doing right before the reward with the reward and think, oh, Perhaps I caused that reward by whatever I was doing. And there, therefore, that sort of pacing or head bobbing would be seen as like a superstitious behavior as a sort of as a way to bring that reward onto itself. And that is a metaphor or a controlled demonstration of things like people crossing their fingers or wearing a lucky sweater. And then something good happens mm-hmm. and they think that, OK, it just re- reinforces their, their belief or creates the belief that this thing that I just did caused this good thing to happen. And then, you know, it reinforces itself, right? Because to the extent that you believe it, you yeah. continue to do it, right? Athletes are famous for this, right? They wear the same underwear or they eat the same meal and so forth, and they're afraid to tinker with it. And I guess the extent to which you believe it is the extent to which it probably plays out, right? If you if you believe that the secret to your success is that you have to eat chicken every day before the game, and then for some reason you don't get the chicken, that will presumably generate evidence that will confirm yeah. your hypothesis. Is there evidence to suggest that when people who believe these things, they somehow become predictive because of people's beliefs? Confirmation bias is 
pretty well studied in people. So let's say you you eat the chicken before a game and then something ambiguously good or bad happens. You could either, if you believe that the chicken leads to good things happening, you might be more likely to interpret that outcome as a good thing. On the other hand, if it's hard to interpret it as a good thing, you might say, well, I didn't eat the right kind of chicken. So you kind of interpret events in ways that support your previous belief. There's a whole section on tempting fate, which I found interesting. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that, because it has its own particular logic. Tempting fate, it's this idea of doing something considered risky, and then thinking that might be more likely to, well, there are various forms of it. You might do something risky and think that is going to bring something bad upon you, perhaps because it signals overconfidence. And then you think that the if something bad happens as a result, mm-hmm. you think that the universe is punishing you for your overconfidence. There's this phrase like, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. It's also similar to like when you hear a football commentator mention that someone hasn't had an interception in three games. And as soon as they mention that, they're like, I think we just jinxed him. Yeah, there are a few different variants. That's the kind of overconfidence. Like if you say that I'm on a streak or I'm on a roll, the people feel like, oh, the next time if your your streak ends, then that's because you tempted fate. Whereas more likely it's because of regression to the mean. Like if if you're flipping a bunch of, if you're flipping a coin over and you get three heads in a row, eventually you're going to get tails. Well, I guess the idea is if you observe it or you mention it and you become aware of it and you highlight it, and then when the regression of mean automatically happens, then you think that your observation of it is what led to the regression to the mean. If If you hadn't observed that you'd had this consecutive streak, then you probably wouldn't recall the change in fate. If there are a series of unusual events, just statistically, the next event is probably going to be not it's probably going to be a usual, a typical event. So if you say that, oh, I'm on a streak, these unusual mm-hmm. events are going to keep happening. Just statistically, the next event that happens is probably not going to be un- unusual. And then you're going to attribute that to your saying that things are unusual. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you tempted fate by commenting on it. Now, you have some great descriptions about yeah. fishermen, and they're apparently among the more superstitious of people, presumably because their profession has mm-hmm. so much r- randomness baked in. You mentioned that the further out to sea they go, the fishermen who go furthest out to sea are the ones who are the most superstitious. So presumably if we go across individuals, depending on their occupations or depending on their activities, those environments where there is the least amount of predictability, would those be the environments that would be most likely to generate superstitious people? It goes along with the idea of when people are stressed or or anxious or out of control, they're more likely to try to regain control by finding patterns or leveraging ways to take advantage of those patterns through superstitious rituals, for instance. And so commercial fishing is one of the deadliest professions in the world. And it's no coincidence that there are a lot of taboos and rituals and superstitions among commercial fishers. You know, you're out there in the sea and there could be a rogue wave or there's a heavy equipment moving around. So there's lots of physical risk. And then also you don't know about the catch. Like it could be a, a bad catch that day. So there's also a lot of economic and professional risk. And of course, the furthest out you mm. can be is an astronaut. And you tell this story about Apollo 13. And these are incredibly scientific people. It doesn't get more scientific than NASA, but even people at NASA were encouraging people to pray for the safety of the Apollo 13 
So that's the idea of mind over matter. Our beliefs that our thoughts can go out into the world and have physical effects. So the world was hoping that Apollo 13 would turn out well, that they would fix the equipment and the astronauts would survive. And I talked to Edgar Mitchell, who walked on the moon on, I forget which Apollo, but he was working at NASA on Apollo 13. And he told me that there were sort of mumblings around the office that, or the control room, that somehow these good wishes sent up from Earth had some sort of causal impact on the mission outcome. We've mentioned animism, and this is the belief that inanimate objects have intentionality. There seems to be a continuum, because in some ways, attributing intentionality to dogs is a version of animism, and maybe even like attributing intentionality to people is in many ways a form of animism. And I think you, you argue that just the belief in consciousness itself is a version of magical thinking. Let's start with dogs, because I really, I found this part really interesting, the idea that when dogs put on that guilty face, apparently it, it correlates not with whether they've done anything or not, but rather whether the owners think they did something. So first, I just want to mention that I don't think belief in consciousness is magical thinking necessarily. I think belief in free will is magical thinking. But in terms of the dogs, yeah, so it's not black or white. It's not just attributing any consciousness to or any mind to a, an inanimate object as, as magical thinking. I think it's the over-attribution, as you said. So dogs may have some element of consciousness, but overestimating their level of consciousness or mind is magical thinking. So dogs, yeah, if you yell at a dog, we, people tend to think that the dog is showing some form of guilt through its face. Like it's thinking, oh, I was bad to people and I need to rethink my actions. And it's just deep searching its soul. Whereas really the face just means, oh, I don't know what I did, but this thing is angry and I'm scared I'll get hit. Yeah, so there, there's some research mm-hmm. on showing that dogs will react the same way whether or not they did anything wrong. It's just sort of an in-the-moment response. And even people, mm-hmm. presumably other people in the world are conscious, but not everything they do is a well-thought-out act. Sometimes they just unconsciously do things that might be good or bad. And if you think that, let's say, maybe someone cut you off in, in traffic, so I guess one philosophy in life is to, it's better to think of people as idiots than a-holes. Because if you think that someone cut you off in traffic mm-hmm. because they were they thought this through, and then you might think they're an a-hole, but it might just be over attributing consciousness to them in that moment. Maybe they just didn't notice what was going on, and they just, just sort of following instincts or, or a knee-jerk thing, in which case it was just idiocy, basically. And that might be a better way to see that situation, rather than to think that it was a fully conscious, planned out way to harm you or to harm other people. In the theory of mind and ascribing intentionality is something that we learn very early on as humans, and it is incredibly useful, right? Especially when we're interacting with other humans. But is our ascription of intentionality to inanimate objects, is this just a byproduct? Or does this also serve some function? If we're looking at dots on a screen and we're trying to understand where the dot is going to go next, why would ascribing intentionality to the dot or trying to figure mm-hmm. out what the dot is thinking, how would that make us better predictors? A lot of things that happen in the world around us are the effect of other people. And it's good to be aware of the plans and the intentions of other people. We don't want to miss those actual conspiracies when they're there, or not just conspiracies in a bad way, but the thoughts and aims of the people and beings around you. So 
this might be a case of error management theory where it's better to be it's better to over attribute mm -hmm. these thoughts and intentions than to miss them completely and so that might then apply to just dots on a screen and we have this kind of automatic theory of mind uh, this sort of social reasoning that kicks in whenever you see something that appears to be animate. There are certain cues that we see in people mm. that makes us recognize, oh, this is a physical object guided by a mind. This is a human body. There's a mind in there. And there are ways to, like an illusion, mm. like, a, like an optical illusion, to trigger those things, those ways of attributing mind. And so you can make an animation of a few dots moving around that then trigger that. You talked about these robots, and this was 10 years ago, so the robots have come a much further way since then. But you talk about the robots in the senior care facilities and how people derive comfort from these little robots and that they can start thinking of them as having some intentionality or having some kind of spirit in, inside of them. It's almost natural, right? It just kicks in. And people ascribe personalities to their Roombas. They give them names yeah. and pronouns yeah. and so forth. People give names to their household robots and you know, when they break down people are sad and they'd rather spend a lot to repair it than to replace it mm -hmm. and soldiers sometimes have bomb diffusing robots and they get really sad when it gets blown up um, especially in that case where it's this robot mm -hmm. that is saving their life repeatedly there's a lot invested in that thing so they treat it as a loved one or even just when your laptop is acting funny and you yell at your laptop i think that's you're anthropomorphizing the laptop and I think that's a case of magical thinking. And you say that you're more likely to ascribe intentionality to inanimate objects when they behave in yeah. unpredictable ways, right? So as long as your laptop is kind of doing what it's supposed to, then yeah. don't you just think of it as a thing. But the minute it starts messing up, like we, we just had with our cameras just a few minutes ago, you're like, yeah. what the hell is this thing doing? What is it thinking? Like, why is it being such a jerk? And then you feel like hitting it or, or reprimanding it somehow. Yeah, I think that might be a case of the when you feel out of control, you try to look for patterns. So if something acts weird, you're suddenly in this space where you don't know what's going on. And you're, there's uncertainty and you try to regain certainty by conjuring up some explanation for it and that can maybe lead to looking for patterns in the world and one common type of pattern that we look for in the yeah. world is mental so it's, it's like activating your problem solving skills when something's deviating from the pattern you're like okay what's going on here and your default method for figuring things out is to figure yeah. out what the intentionality is right that's probably makes sense in many environments more so than to start figuring out like what's the yeah bug in the software. And so you also, when you talk about divine purpose, you have a whole chapter on how people kind of make sense of their lives and the events that happen in their lives, in particular, random events that happen in their lives, right? So if you get hit by a car or you get hit by lightning, you want to know, why did this happen to me? It's less problematic when the good things happen, because the good things, you're yeah. like, oh, that's because I'm so awesome. But if bad things happen, you want to ascribe it to some plan. And you see this with athletes all the time, right? Where they lose a game and they're like, this is part of God's plan, trying to toughen me up for to climb the higher mountain next time. Yeah, and there's some potential benefit to that, to this notion that everything happens for a reason. There's one or a few studies in which look, looked at people to you whom know, negative things had happened. They'd gone through some sort of tragic experience. Mm -hmm. And the people who attributed the experience to a loving God's plan or thought that it was meant to be for some reason, they actually showed greater post-traumatic growth than the other people. So it's like mm -hmm. they, they looked for a silver lining to their experience and then they actually created a silver lining. They found well, some way to interpret the events as being positive 
And then it led to better health, better mental health, stronger relationships with people around them. So that's an occasional benefit of magical thinking in terms of meaning making. You say that that only depressed people are the ones that are really, truly realistic (laughs) about things, right? Uh, Depressive realism is the term. Which way does the causation go there? Is it like if you're depressed, you're more likely to be realistic? Or if you're more realistic, uh, you're more likely to be depressed? Question. Don't know. That'll take some thought to, to untangle. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But what I found really interesting is that this idea that you are more likely to attribute some kind of divine will or luck to like near mm-hmm. misses, right? You have this story where if light, I don't think you used this example, but if lightning misses you by a foot, then, you know, you're considered yeah. pretty lucky. But if it misses you by a mile, then you're not considered lucky. Yeah. And it would seem, wait, hold on. <laughs> Wouldn't the luckiest thing to be further away? Yeah, so one factor that influences our perception of luck is how easily things could have been bad and how bad they yeah. easily could have been. So it's this counterfeit, the ease to which we can kind of imagine the counterfactual. So when bad. things very easily could have been bad and when that badness would have been really bad. That's when we feel very lucky. Yeah, I love this one study you pointed to where they had a roulette wheel and they had these three different colors. One was the wheel was divided up into three just big buckets, red, green, and blue. And then the other one had 30 buckets, all little tiny slivers, but it still amounted to one third, one third, one third. And then when, you know, you get the red in the second one, you think, oh, wow, I'm lucky just because... The proximity of that wedge to these other multicolored wedges is closer, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great study. It's interesting. <laughs> we so easily tell stories about when we think about how things are versus just a tiny little thing could have tipped it a different way. Suddenly yeah. we think that the way things are, oh, the chance that such a slim chance that things turned out this way. And then we think that they couldn't have happened by chance there must be something behind it. This outcome is very meaningful to me, and therefore it must be meaningful to the universe as well. Maybe the universe wanted it this way. Now, of course, this wouldn't make any sense if the result of that was pure passivity. But if the result of that is to inspire reflection of any kind, then I think it makes perfect sense, right? Because if you think about, if you're doing like a classification algorithm, it doesn't make sense to spend any time pondering the instances where you're kind of way away from the frontier. It makes sense to spend most of your time on the borderline case. In law school, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about when somebody just draws up a plan to go kill somebody and kill somebody. It's usually what happens if, you know, something like happened yeah. semi-accidentally. That's a more interesting legal case. When the lightning strikes 30 miles away, it doesn't really make sense for you to think about what could I have done differently? But if it lands right next to you, then you're like, wow, this happens sometimes when you're crossing the street and the bus misses you by like an inch. You think about that for a while, like, hey, if I didn't look up from my phone at that moment, then bad things would have happened. So it makes sense to ponder those borderline cases. And maybe this idea of luck makes you at least think about it more. Yeah. I'm not sure if just thinking about it more would necessarily lead you to believe that it's more likely that other thing could have happened. Maybe it could just be as simple as you're on the edge of something. And that means that it's more likely that whatever happened could have not happened. Towards the end of the book, you start talking a little more deeply about existentialism. And you talk about some of your own kind of personal experiences. I think you said that at one point, a girlfriend of yours said you're too depressed to be an existentialist. And existentialism is this idea that you really do have responsibility for 
your choices. How can magical thinking in some way or the ascription of sacredness to things inspire a greater responsibility and engagement with the world? Yeah, it gets into spiritualism and a couple of different versions of spirituality. One is to think that there are actual spirits in the world, other people's souls or some sort of animistic agency or God. Then there's another sort of a secular form of spiritualism. I mean, it's not clear whether spirituality is the right word for it, but just the notion that we can have experiences that expand your consciousness so that you might feel as though you are part of something larger, even if you sort of rationally know that you are not part of some universal consciousness, you can still have that kind of experience. If you're out in nature and suddenly you lose your sort of ego, your identity as just an individual bundle of atoms walking around, you have kind of this melding, this sort of melting of the ego boundaries. That could be considered a form of spirituality. Or if you just see some mm -hmm. sort of intense meaning in something, some sort of event ha overpowers you with emotion that could be mm -hmm. considered a spiritual experience. It gets very, it gets into gray areas here. So what counts as magical thinking? Do you think that a lot of people would say that the more science you understand, the less meaning you're likely to see in the world, right? As we're moving into a more secular world, we're moving into a more scientific world, right? You talk about the mm -hmm. gap-filling God. So in the old days, God filled in our lack of capacity to explain things through science. And then science started filling those gaps and evicting God, right, as an explanation. But I think you argue that it's not necessarily the case that greater scientific understanding disenchants yeah. you from the world, right? That the enchantment can sometimes even be strengthened the greater the extent to which you can understand how the world works scientifically. Why do we think that they're necessarily in opposition, and why might they not be in opposition? So if you look at the night sky and you look at the stars, someone who thinks very magically might say, well, those pinpoints of light are a part of the heavens and they're being moved around by a god, for instance. Whereas a, an astronomer might look at them and say, okay, well, that's a star. It's a certain collection of atoms. There's no inherent soul to it. And so that might be considered flattening the world and taking the magic out of it. But the astronomer might also go further and say, well, just think of how massive that is and think of all the numbers of interactions between particles and that thing and the intense heat and the age, you know, the time span that it takes to create that thing and then its survival and then the supernova that it might create afterwards and then the beautiful gases and plasmas and the universe that were created when it cause of that supernova. Like these are overwhelming ideas that we can't fully wrap our heads around. And that can be, you know, a crazy wondrous experience just to think about all that. Some people might call that spiritual, but it's definitely wondrous and awesome. But that enchantment is not based on magical thinking the way you define it, right? Because it doesn't have any conflation of the mental and the physical, right? Yeah, completely secular wonderment, which is not necessarily any weaker than to mm -hmm. think that it was placed there by a god. I think it's probably when we move back to the human dimension, you made this claim that just attributing agency to a bag of skin, right, which is what we do. That's what we do from the moment we're born and we look up at our, our mother or our father, right? We see something more than a bag of skin. And yet we don't really have any scientific proof that there's anything 
beyond the bag of skin. And yet, it would be impossible for us to understand the world around us if we didn't think that way, right? In order to make sense of the social world, you need to attribute a mind to the fleshy objects moving around you. You have to see them as like yourself, as having thoughts and emotions and hopes and dreams and mm -hmm. fears, which is not necessarily magical thinking. I think over attributing consciousness could be, but it definitely makes sense to to believe in consciousness itself. Because you experience consciousness, I assume. Mm -hmm. I say in the book that if anything in the world, we don't have an explanation for what causes consciousness. We can find neural correlates of consciousness, and, but as to why it exists at all in the first place, like why we aren't just robots that perform all these actions, but we also on top of that have this subjectivity, this feeling of what it's like to do these things. There's no explanation of why that's there. And as I say in the book, if anything is magic, then consciousness is magic. Mm -hmm. In this book, you survey a lot of academic literature, yeah. but you're not an academic, you're a journalist, yeah. and you do a fantastic job of bringing the academic research to life. What do you think the role of science journalism is in trying to bridge that gap between the cutting-edge scientific research and popular understanding? Yeah, people have different skills and priorities and resources that scientists who are conducting the research. Either they are not good writers, or maybe they're amazing writers, but they don't have the time to fully communicate everything that they're doing. So it's good to, it's still good to get those ideas out there. And then writers, maybe some of them were scientists or are scientists, but we are really interested in understanding the cool stuff that scientists do, and also finding ways to express it or to connect it to other ideas. And perhaps we feel a responsibility to share these things with people who aren't scientists. And there are definite benefits to the readers, perhaps reading about how to make choices in their lives. Like maybe they're reading a psychology book and think, okay, this is some advice on how to be a better person or how to relate to other people better. Or maybe they're reading a newspaper article about vaccines. And they're thinking, okay, maybe I'll get a shot. And then it you know, improves their health. Or they're reading about some big scientific like research on microprocessors and they think okay i'm going to vote for this senator who supports scientific and technological technological research which then leads to faster computers so there are a lot of ways that people can benefit by reading about science and then just sort of the mm -hmm. learning about the wonder of the universe might inspire someone to write a poem or something and so i think that's the science writers basically we enjoy learning about these things and packaging them in a certain way and expressing our own thoughts and emotions. And then we also like having some, you know, responsibility, some benefit for our readers, and then also providing some benefit to the scientists who like to see their ideas and their hard work have some direct impact mm -hmm. on a wider public and to get credit for what they're doing. What I particularly like about this book is you describe how it helped you to understand yourself a little bit better. So fantastic book, Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Rational Beliefs Keep Us Healthy, happy and sane. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. It's been fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>